I think the arts have been trying to sell the value um, uh, for some time. Yeah. Um, whether people are prepared to listen to that. I yeah. mean, I think the decisions that makers are, yeah. but you only have to go back to just a couple of weeks ago when uh, it's not arts and culture, it's recreation, but when a uh, horse race was advertised on the sales of the of the opera house, um, the debate yeah. uh, that that created, yeah. and one of the criticisms of, of, um, of uh, the... Um, the, the protesters against this were, well, hang on, the, the, the arts and culture, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really for an elitist sort of activity. Mm. Um, and, um, I think there's plenty of evidence to say that arts and culture, a well balanced arts and cultural uh, mix is really important, mm. um, for every aspect of society. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today, Barry Bergen joins us to talk about music, life and the economic and cultural impact of festivals and the arts. Barry is Professor of Management at Bond University and has a successful academic career, including Head of the University of Adelaide Business School and a three-decade-long career consulting to public and commercial enterprises. We discuss a wide range of topics, including Barry's area of particular interest, the measurement of value of our social and cultural infrastructure, including the arts and sports sectors. Barry has worked closely with groups like Screen Producers Association, uh, SA Film Corporation, Adelaide Festival and the Australian Music Association. This is an interesting discussion about the value of the arts and cultural events on economic indicators such as jobs, as well as the cultural impact on building more livable and enjoyable cities. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. All right, thanks for joining us today, Barry. Um, I'm going to start right back at the beginning, like I do with all of these interviews. What were you like as a young boy? As a young boy, I think <laughs> I was a bit serious um, um, and a bit creative. I liked uh, I liked sport, but wasn't very good at it. Yeah. So... Uh, I've uh, got more involved in in other sort of creative things. Uh, pretty normal. Were you academic? You said not, not uh, so much. Pre- no, I was pretty academic. Ac- academic in what what sort of subjects did you? Uh, strengths are uh, more mathematical yeah. and uh, and analytical. Yeah. From a young age, do you kind of do you see like if you went back to being eight, would you go? Oh, I'm quite mathematical, even back. Yeah, back, yeah. Back I think home. I was a bit of a nerd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what? So where? Like, was that? I'm assuming that wasn't liking maths because of, I don't know, the job you might get out of maths. I'm assuming you just, you like maths. Yeah, yeah I yeah. just think I, lo- I liked maths. So yeah. uh, I grew up in Port Pirie, which is uh, a couple of hours north of here. Um, didn't seem to be too impacted by the lead. 
uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, but yeah, was was uh, yeah. I, I think I had academic bent from a young age. Yeah, yeah. and was like was your school academic? I wouldn't have said heavily. I went to public schools in in the area. I wouldn't have said there was a heavy focus on on, uh, academics. Uh, It was just pretty standard school, I think. So so being academic has sort of almost come from you. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, okay. So like you as that kind of, that that child who likes maths and through to, what, what, like did you become a, like you went to uni obviously and and you studied and did did you go into, did you plan to go into academia no, no, I, I call myself an accidental academic. I spent, uh, so when I finished my, uh, my uh, degree, my, uh, so I did an honours degree in, in economics. Uh, so when I finished that, I, um, I got a job, first of all, in the public service in South Australia. Um, then I worked, uh, well, for Touche Ross, which became KPMG for a few years. And I went to university to head up a contract research unit um, in the first instance um, and ended up, you know, the idea was to go back to, to uni to get some bit more qualifications and then to go back out consulting. I liked consulting work, uh, had an impact, um, I, I think influenced different things, um, but I ended up staying at a uni. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so what what are some of the those consulting projects you did at like, sort of when you are in the... In the- like the consulting kind of in your inner twenties or oh, okay yes yeah. so I worked in, in management consulting in in KPMG and also in regional state development in the, the public service so yeah. it, it was mainly about economic development uh, types of projects uh, infrastructure projects uh, assessment uh, and over the years the, that has grown and and become you know particularly interesting in the in the way in which infrastructure projects have to be validated, justified, the public works committee type processes, all those sorts of things. And moving across to more private um, provision of infrastructure uh, also changes the the uh, approaches to evaluation. So I worked in, in those sorts of areas. And coming out of that sort of got very interested in cultural and social infrastructure uh, which has probably become a, 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 you know, a bit of my page. Well, I've done a lot of work on, on transport infrastructure and telecommunications infrastructure and, you know, just generally broad hardwired, uh, mm-hmm. infrastructure. I've also, you know, got particularly interested, I think, in what you would say, the social infrastructure and how you put values in, in those sorts of things. So what's a social, what's an example of social infrastructure? Oh, it's, it's, it's museums, it's cultural events, it's, uh, it's art galleries, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, libraries, it's, it, but, but a lot of events, the value of, of, uh, you know, film industry, um, music, uh, all those things, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and you went back to uni to further your, Qualifications and study is that is that right? In- that was the aim. Yeah. Um, as I said, an accidental academic. I, um, I found I really enjoyed teaching. Uh, I put out some academic research articles, all in the name of of, of completing a PhD. But you know, forty years on, I still haven't finished it. But uh, <laughs> uh, so so I'm I'm an accidental academic in that sort of context. Basically. Yeah, I wouldn't get a role in university anymore. Uh, in Why is that? Right? Because of the importance that, that is placed on a PhD um, as uh, yeah, an entry point, I think. Yeah. Um, 
Whereas when I started in it, uh, it was seen as part of your journey, but I replaced it with doing academic research without the PhD. Yeah, okay. um, But that wouldn't really happen anymore because of the way that, that uh, education has changed. Yeah, okay. And, and what, what did you like about when you were doing the lecturing and teaching? Um, the connector seemed to hook you in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found I did really enjoy teaching. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of you know, seeing the light switch on some people. I, I really enjoyed uh, explaining things. Um, and probably I really enjoyed feeling like I was making a difference. It was, you know, there are a number of ways in which you can cont- contribute, and I think um, you know, my research, both applied and, and academic research, m- um, made a difference and makes a difference. But also I think teaching makes a difference. Mm. I mean... Uh, my view is, you know, most of the people I know in professions work pretty hard. You know, the world, uh, basically says productivity needs to improve to improve what economics says. You know, the way you get income increases is to increase productivity. Uh, most of the people I know work, you know, they, they can't work any harder than they're working. Mm. So therefore the future of the world, I think, and improving the world is about, uh, it is about working smarter, not harder. And that's yeah. where you get your income increases and quality of life increases from and so on yeah yeah okay so at adelaide uni you how long were you at adelaide uni you know? i was at adelaide uni for 28 years I yeah. Think. yeah and you yeah. went like in like what what kind of roles did you have over that well I, I started off in contract research yeah. so um, i headed up i was the first full-time employee at the south australian center for economic studies uh so i went there to head that up and to uh and to um uh, so have the uni become more involved in contract research. Out of that, I did some casual lecturing, casual teaching, uh, enjoyed that. And, and as I was doing that, the opportunity, so I, I was doing the contract research, um, full time and doing some casual teaching, uh, lecturing, uh, on the side, so to speak. Uh, and then that sort of swung around. So, uh, I got offered a full time academic role. I, uh, so which involved teaching and doing academic research. And I could still do some work through the Center for Economic Studies and, and, and independently on the side. So it swung, it swung around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you went to Bond Uni? Bond yeah. Now, so, yeah. so I'm at Bond. I've been at Bond for four and a half years. Uh, opportunity to try a very different university structure, yeah. uh, as a private university. Really the only, um, significant, if I put it that way, f- fully private university in Australia, no, no government funds other than competitive research, so students pay all fees, uh, Bond doesn't get any uh, income from the government for, student, uh, for students they teach. Um, so a very, very different environment. Um, the, the, the differences are, you know, the students are very much more diverse from all over Australia, from all over the world, um, and it's much smaller, so you get much more intimate relationships uh, with with students in a, in an academic context. So you know, smaller classes, thirty five to forty, compared to teaching a class of six hundred at, at uh, the University of Adelaide. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so very different. Yeah. And does that like do you see a difference in the, I guess the relationships and connections you have with students, or like the outcomes you get, or yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I think really good students will succeed wherever they go, yeah. whatever they they do, um, and they'll have good relationships with their the, their um, academic mentors, so to speak. Uh, I mean, uh, um, the numbers of students at, at Adelaide that you know were challenging and would come and ask good questions and really get engaged in their work. 
but also in the bigger environment, it's much easier to get lost or, or to hide, mm. either of those. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're in a smaller classroom, when you're in a, a smaller circumstance, you can't do that. Yeah, okay. Well, and what, like you did touch on it earlier, but what, what, have, what have you seen change over your time in um, working for universities that, that have evolved in terms of where universities are now than what they were a few decades ago? Well, they're, they're much more corporate and uh, and controlled um, yeah. these days. Uh, expectations, uh, you know, in the same way uh, we talk about students hiding, I mean, I think uh, early in the piece, academics were left to pretty much their own devices. They could, they could you know, hide as long as they were around the place. Uh, they, they weren't challenged to, on their teaching. They weren't particularly challenged on their research. But these days, and it was just really self-pride that, mm-hmm. that would push them along. For the majority of people, that, that was more than enough. And uh, they, were, they were contributing very positively mm-hmm. uh, through it. But you know, there, there was the opportunity to, uh, to not really understand what, what you needed to contribute. I think these days the, the performance measurement is much stronger, uh, much more uh, focused. Yeah. Focus in terms of like producing, writing papers, yeah, yeah, getting yeah, into yeah. journals. Yeah, expectations about, yeah. about what you have to achieve in the quality of your teaching, yeah. how much research you need to put out, uh, those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah okay. And... Obviously, sort of more online didn't exist back, sort of, or any real note, sort of, a few decades ago. So the idea of having a lot of edu- lectures online or doing sort of having tutorials that might be virtual is that that becoming more of a uh, absolutely. There are now more. I mean, I know particularly business education. There are now more people enrolled in postgraduate, more domestic. So I'm talking about Australian students. Uh, enrolled in online or what's called mixed mode programs, yeah. so a mix of online and face to face, postgraduate business programs, then they are enrolled in on campus programs. Yeah, okay. Uh, and in undergraduate, it's up at the order of 20% uh, um, enrolment in online programs. Things like universities, uh, Australia um, has made huge impacts as have some of the private providers. So, you know, there, there is a, a huge uh, um, drift. I mean, people are, are choosing. And that's growing. Both of those are growing at 10% a year, yeah. whereas on-campus stuff is at best flat. Now, I'm talking about domestic students, yeah. uh, so I'm not talking about international students in that context. But so international uh, is like, so, so international is growing on the online or sort of more growing on the physical? Um, <coughs> Some some growth o- online in a global context, yeah. but um, but much more. Um, I mean, the, you know, there are articles in the the paper all the time about uh, about um, people looking for an international experience in their education. They're doing that. They're still doing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, and so things have changed. Sort of so, so dramatically. If I think back when I went to so going to uni in the late eighties, early nineties. Most students were very local. Everything was obviously sort of tutorials were face to face, and so do you. Have you sort of observed any sort of changes in terms of, I don't know, the 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 um, the success of the students going through, or the sort of like in, in terms does online and face to face make it like we do a lot of education work, and <coughs> we'll ask some people if you're asking them. So what do you want? Do you want online? Do you want want face to face? And they'll go, oh, we want a hybrid kind of education. I guess they're fearful if if it's all online, they won't absorb as much. And yeah, look, I, I, and- I think that that um, 
Well, there's a, there are a number of responses to that. I mean, the first is I don't think anybody thinks that an online education uh, is quite as good an experience as a uh, face-to-face mm. uh, education. Depends on the context of the education course. But uh, basically what's been missing in online and before that distance education was um, is the opportunities for engagement. Mm. Now, that is growing um, quite quite quickly. I mean, um, you know, when you look at the opportunities that, that um, internet speeds now present, yeah. um, the software has responded to that. I'll, I'll teach a class on Thursday night where I'll have 15 people in a classroom, live classroom, and they'll be based all around the world. Yeah. So, um, uh, and that will be live. Yeah. Um, and uh, at this stage... You know, they can use a microphone. I won't, uh, in that class that size, depending on where they're at, bandwidth might not be enough to, to get, um, um, a, um, video in there. But they, they can certainly see me and yeah, see my okay. PowerPoint slides. You use a lot of things for engaging, like polling software. So you say, here's a particular yeah. question. The possible answers are A, B, C, or D. Who, what, who thinks what is, you know, and you'll, they will poll yeah, okay. them. And then you'll be able to say, well, you know, most of you said A, which is the right answer. Some of you said B. You know, why did you say B? And, you, and so you try and get engagement. So you are getting increasing engagement like that. However, I mean, I think the majority of people choose uh, online for for convenience. Hmm. Um, you need a totally different discipline set yeah. to undertake online education. You need a totally different uh, skill set to teach online, in, in online mm-hmm. education. You need to be more structured, organised, all those sorts of things. You certainly aren't going to, uh, to get good teaching evaluations based on your personality mm-hmm. in an online uh, situation. So it's got to be much more structured. Yeah, and, and and the technology is catching up with the the need to have that student engagement online and often. Uh, the geographic boundaries mean far less than what they did when, That's right. when I was studying. And, so. and you know, in most institutions, are really pushing their online space. Yeah, they are. So um, your your academic interest, and I guess your consult you do consulting as well, um, is that sort of social cultural impact. Um, What's changed over the years in terms of the discussions around all of that? Uh, social, con- cultural, festivals, events, museums, art galleries? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I would have said generally in, in the social space, understanding um, the, um, uh, the, the context of value is, has, has, well, does change. Um, so we're talking about cost-benefit frameworks. Cost-benefit frameworks are where the impacts are beyond the direct finances. Mm. Uh, and uh, some of them are tangible and some are intangible, some are direct and some are indirect. And there's always been a, a standard cost-benefit framework for, for analysing that. A lot of the emphasis on a lot of events and so on over probably the last you know, uh, tw- 20 years uh, has been to look at just one part of that, mm. which is is essentially the um, what, what I would call the economic impact part of this cost-benefit evaluation. Uh, it's an important part uh, because of the importance uh, of the cultural sector in providing employment opportunities now. Get, getting even more important in some ways as we drift into knowledge economies, knowledge-based economies. I mean, the, 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 the idea that arts, culture, sport even, you know, that's something you did for fun, 
uh, and wasn't part of the of of the the, the business community. That mm-hmm. was you know making cars and and uh, and um, you know building things. Well, I mean the, these days, you know that the, the um, cultural arts and entertainment recreation uh, parts of the economy, you know, they drive the job opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, one of the things that has happened, I think. Um, over the years has been perhaps a, a an overemphasis on the job creation effect. On the other hand, some people would argue, well, you know, arts and culture are not about is not about jobs. It's about uh, quality of life and all those sorts of things. Which is, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I, I it is about quality of life. But uh, um, yeah, as I said, I think that the, the emphasis on on employment outcomes, income creation. Uh, I think is a really important part of the mm. arts and cultural sector. It's how it's part of the way in which governments get a return for uh, the way in which they support the the mm. sector. Yeah. yeah. So if we can bring it back to say, let's say, uh, uh, South Australia has discussions, or other other places around the world have discussions around a new museum or an art gallery, and like how. Like so, how does sort of the analysis you might do to kind of go? Well, how do we put forward a case of why this this new art gallery might be of benefit? It sort of sounds like it's it's, it's economic benefit, but it's also that cultural benefit as well. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, both both are critical. I mean, uh, um, somebody from my background, I would sit there and say that they're interrelated. I yeah. mean, quality of life uh, you know, has a value context. Um, some of which is yeah, you, know, you can value with numbers. Some of which is harder to do so. Um, certainly not you know, harder to value, and, and we see many attempts around the world to value you know, quality of life differently to GDP. You know? mm. uh, and th- that's the argument we're talking about here. Um, there is something well beyond just just the the GDP or income or employment creation effects of culture that make it important. Mm. Uh, at, at the same time, uh, what I'm suggesting is, I think that you know, in the way the economy is going. You know, that harder edge economics part is still important. I mm-hmm. mean, it it should not be ignored. It's not uh, uh, it's not the only part, but it, it's still important. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's interesting. We do work for like state theatre and and the art gallery and a few other different groups, and it's interesting. You have these almost discussion with within those those arts organisations, obviously very passionate about their art form. And then you'll have members of the general population just really not understanding where they kind of fit. And I guess almost like the answer is probably from a politi- political side is is knowing well, like what 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 are the value of these different I guess cultural institutions actually going to play? Um, I guess where where, where do, do you kind of I guess the, the do you find the conversation is get has got more sophisticated over time of actually kind of illustrating. Of those organisations, do you think within those organisations they're having conversations around what is our what is our impact on the economy? In, oh, they're, 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 they're definitely having. Or they're being those forced to, I guess. To- they're, they're forced to. I mean, because because of the public goods component, you know, in in the arts and cultural sector, uh, and and because a lot of the economic impact is not directly related with the event. Um, so, I mean, when, when people go to an exhibition at the art gallery or when they go to an event at festival theatre or when they go uh, somewhere like, like that, then, you know, they go and spend money at restaurants and they go and spend money, uh, you know, in, in transport. Mm. And, and so a lot of the contribution of, of an event or, or, or a, a cultural activity is not in the event itself. Mm. Um, and, and that's important to recognise. 
and you know, um, event organisers, um, infrastructure providers, yeah, understand that. They understand the externality impacts and they understand that's part of their story. So it's about you know, providing that part of the story. But it shouldn't also be about ignoring the importance of things like creativity and, and, and impacts on, on general quality of life. I mean, museums and, and those sorts of things have an impact, you know, in education. Mm. Uh, they, they attract, I mean, if you don't have them, you're not going to attract particular parts of the workforce, which is, again, where knowledge-based economies come in, those people mm-hmm. who value those sorts of things. So that there is a much broader, broader concept. And the the question to me is about getting the balance right of understanding the the the, the balance between uh, between short term outcomes associated with with particular events or activities and, and longer term value and how that's created. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, and obviously, sort of different organisations like uh, galleries and museums and and festivals need to be able to yeah put forward a compelling case to their government and other other funders of where where that's sort of coming yeah, from. I, yeah. I still remember at one stage attending a public works committee meeting where a, um, a particular event was being reviewed by a public works committee or a piece of, of cultural infrastructure actually was being reviewed by a public works committee and being asked the question at the time, uh, so, so uh, Mr Bergen, how do you put a value on, on the government supporting that uh, activity as opposed to putting a new bed in the hospital? Mm. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, so that's, that's when you are using public funds for things, you, that's right. you know, governments have to be making those choices. So therefore you need to, to have, you know, the evidence that says, you know, let's put it this way, it's very unlikely that something is, will be supported just in its own right. It, it has to make the case why it should be supported. Yeah. yeah. And so, so when you get to, uh, different festivals. So, how, how do you measure economic impact? Obviously, we, we we do some survey data collection of people who attend different festivals or, uh, and, and events, and so we'll collect sort of. I guess we're looking at locals. We'll look at sort of their perception of the value and and what what contribution it has economically and culturally. But also, I guess primarily, we're we're particularly interested in, in interstate and overseas visitors. And are they coming for the event? And are they how much they're spending? And are they staying their stay for the event? And obviously, you've got other other inputs you bring into that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the information for the event itself is pretty straightforward. Yeah. I mean, you know, they have their financials, uh, and you can see how much people spent and so yeah. on. But what's interesting, you know, uh, so so the activity there is is straightforward to measure. The activity outside of the event is harder. Uh, mm. And as I said, for most events, the extent of activity outside the event is much much bigger. Mm than the actual activity at the event itself. And it's how much they spend on accommodation and it's, it's travelling through Adelaide Airport or, yeah. or those sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, the first thing about, is about understanding the impact in terms of gross expenditure is, is understanding that whole level of expenditure. But when you look particularly at locals, uh, well, and, and even tourists, I mean, some people go to an event because they were coming to Adelaide anyway to visit mm. their uncle or auntie or cousin or, or, or whatever. And so you need to take that out and say, well, they would have spent that money with or without the event. Yeah. Um, for a South Australian attending an event, you would sit there and say, well, they would have probably spent that money with or without the event. Mm. Um, they may have spent it interstate, so there's an import replacement thing, but... Um, so, so you need to acknowledge in terms of 
the economic impact, it's only the created expenditure that, that you would count. Mm. Uh, and that create expenditure creates incomes and jobs and, and that's what it's about measuring. It's understanding the impact on jobs and, mm. and, and, and job opportunities and income created. Um, so there's that side of things, pretty standard methodologies now for how that's done. Most of the festivals and events in, in Adelaide use pretty much the same methodology. Um, on top of that, there's trying to understand what the value proposition is for locals and, 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 uh, how they get value out of it, which is a much mm. more complex story. Can you, so from a local side, it's more about, so the spending is almost like a redistribution of their spending. They, they didn't spend it at the, 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 the festival, for example. They probably would have spent it on something different. That, um, yeah. so that sort of that, that redistribution of money. But for, I guess from a local side, it's, it's that cultural creativity, that impact on, on their lives and their, I guess, lifestyles. Yeah, that's and, right. It's yeah. the vibe around a yeah. festival. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, the, the opportunity to go to a museum. It's, it's those sorts of things that, uh, um, that add value yeah. to, to it. Now, everything we do has value beyond what we actually pay. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. I yeah. mean, um, so it's just a question of, of trying to work out what that is for that particular event or festival relative to the other things that you would do. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that sort of that, that contribution that, um, that, that a society be weaker if they didn't have galleries and festivals and events and, and certainly our local sort of uh, where our head office is, we're in Adelaide and we have a lot of festivals and events and that's kind of the a point of building a vibrant culture and a, and, a, and I guess assuming that that rolls onto a great place to live, which makes it a sort of a viable place to move to attract workers and whatever I would have yeah, thought. Yeah, you can look at. I mean, you can look at particular examples of economies that have been built around that type yeah. of thing. Uh, I mean, where, where do you look at around the world and go that it's a culture that it's, it's a it's a cultural city uh, that that becomes an economic city because it's just so great. Well, place. Probably the one that interests me most is Austin in yeah. Texas, um, which describes itself as the uh, guitar capital of the world, the yeah. music festival capital of the world. They say that's, you know, yeah. that, that's what they've defined themselves yeah. at uh, as, uh, but they, uh, they sponsor, well, they, they host things like South by Southwest, which has probably been yeah, the biggest okay. music festival, general music festival in the world in that sort of context, and has been based around that brand and, and, and developing that brand. And what's interesting to see is how, how those sorts of things evolved. I mean, South by Southwest started off as a music festival, evolved into a, a sideline film festival, and now it's evolved into a, a sideline mm. creativity festival on the yeah. end of that. And Austin has done it very well. I mean, um, pretty much every city in the world runs festivals yeah. of some kind uh, to create economic impact. So you could argue, you know, they're just cancelling each other out. But if you go back to my original discussion, uh, my, my original comment, uh, I mean, the, the fact is you're creating opportunities uh, for you know, exporting product out of out of out of your area in, in this way, and if you don't do that, and other people are, mm -hmm. you're going to miss out. That's so right. uh, uh, it, it's a very competitive game. The whole idea of uh, creativity and, and and festivals and so on. But I would have said a, a very critical game. Yeah, yeah, and but I, I would have thought it's you obviously in, in in your role, sort of, and I guess our role as well of measuring the economic impact of an event. But often it is sort of it's that it's that slow burn over that a decade or two decades of of that particular festival or that or a, a whole um, 
amalgamation of sort of a whole lot of festivals, that just starts to create that, that whole cultural yeah, thing. Yeah, essentially you're providing another product for or, or reason for a tourist to come there yeah. or for a local to spend their money there rather than go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can imagine if you didn't have festivals in, uh, in, in Adelaide, people would go over to Melbourne more to, uh, to attend, you know, the Melbourne Fringe or the, you know, the, the, uh, entertainment precincts there. Yeah. So you, you've got to give people opportunities or you'll miss out. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of, I guess, cities around Australia that have used that kind of, I guess, festivals and arts as a way of building a, a strong city, does, how does Adelaide compare to a, a Sydney or Melbourne? Are they all just different or is it well, sort of Sydney and Melbourne are bigger populations? So. I, I, I would think they're, they're different more, more than anything. They all um, have particular events, uh, different, different focus. I mean, I, I think Adelaide has been very, very successful uh, being branded as a cultural city now. It's got, you know, 40, 50 year history, uh, in this space and it continues to, to run, uh, you know, quite successful festivals, um, that certainly help our reputation on the one hand as being you know, a somewhat creative, uh, city in that, that context. But I mean, the fringe festival, uh, WOMAD mix, uh, I think is very important for the brand. It's, I mean, second biggest, Festival, uh, you know, set of festivals in the world outside of the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, okay. Uh, so really important in, in that sort of context. Yeah. And as you said, there's, it's a, that's a commitment to that over 40, 50 years of building that's, that up and yeah. the learnings and knowledge around how do you actually do that. Yeah. Like it's the size of a, an Adelaide, which is about sort of 1.2 million people. It's sort of maybe it's easier to do that than it is if it's a city of no, 4 million people. Is that, is that the, is there any sort of thoughts on that in terms of does the site does it does a smaller city like Adelaide make it easier to run festivals or does it obviously the populace is not there to necessarily sustain it in some ways but does it make it? Well, I think it gives more of a focus to the yeah. things that we do well. Yeah, um, you know those things get lost a, a little in bigger cities. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I'll use Austin as an example. Uh, you know, not a huge city. Yeah. Um, so the same sort of. I mean, it, it's something that that you can that that does get a more of a focal point, become more of a focal point. Mm-hmm. And obviously when it gets to, say, the one side of the economic impact of events and, and, and cultural um, festivals is the the local community kind of vibe and, 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 and building that up. And the other the other flip side is it's, the, I guess, the brand, but also attracting interstate and overseas visitors. So, um, like... Have you got any sort of more sort of talk about sort of how um yeah when that works well and I guess what what is that is that a slow build like so the say Adelaide Festival has been going for um I think twenty or thirty years and longer, uh, longer than that yeah. yeah um is that kind of a just over time it just becomes it builds and builds and and that reputation grows to a point where the interstate and overseas visitors um yeah it becomes oh, look look I I mean I, I think reputation is important. Um, and I mean, Adelaide was very early into this game and certainly had, uh, certainly had some early runs on the board in this space. And I think those runs on the board continue to benefit the city. What I would say is that, uh, that it would be very easy to lose that brand if yeah. you became complacent. Um, complacent so, in what way? Though? Complacent in thinking that, that because it's, it's always been uh, been there. It will continue to be there. I mean, I think um, the 
product evolution continues to be really important. The, uh, I mean, so you, you need to be aware that you're putting on the types of events that will attract people and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and bring them. Um, the whole vibe sort of the thing, the whole marketing message has to be, has to continue to be strong mm. because what we're sure of is that other cities will market and, and other event organizers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a partnership really between the, the region, uh, and the organizer of specific events. Yeah. Um, you know, it has to go together, um, to, to build that story. Um, I mean, even these days, you know, it, it tended to be the, the, the cultural end of, of arts and, and recreation that pitched themselves as festivals you know, in days gone by. Mm. These days, the commercial providers pitch themselves as festivals yeah, as well. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, there's an example of one difference. I mean, you know, there are festivals out there that are purely commercial yeah. uh, and make the organisers lots of money. Yeah. Right? There are a range of different other festivals that are competing with that. Yeah. They tend to obviously be in the more contemporary, uh, younger age group yeah. side of things. But, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting mix just in terms of the business models mm. that are involved as well. Yeah. And, and what are you looking at when you're looking at a festival to go, what was the impact of it tra- attracting interstate and overseas visitors? Obviously, sort of how much they're, they're spending locally and. Yeah. You know. So, I mean, uh, as you know, Jason, you basically are trying to identify some, the, the spend mix that's, that is related to that festival. Uh, you know, so you see some people, I mean, pre-event, uh, you know, you, you can make some estimates based on what, what's spent for other festivals and mm. so on. But, but each festival is, uh, you know, has some degrees of uniqueness, tracks different audiences, yeah. different, different lengths, different spends. Um, you know, and, and so it's important understanding the, the outcomes for individual festivals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's different ways of, there seems to be like, both from an academic side and an economic, economic and academic side of debating what the right way of measuring um, the economic impact is or the cultural and economic impact is. So whether it's about, yeah, I, I'm assuming from a government side or a, I guess a, a different organisations, there's sort of a desire to have it. So the economic impact of that event or that festival or whatever it might be is maybe exaggerated sometimes to sort of show that it's a bit higher and there's others that might be about getting a very pragmatic and might even pull that pull that down so it's about whether of i think you talked before about sort of is it is it multiplying it up is it multiplying it back what what some of the yeah i mean there's still some significant debates about how how this works and some of it's philosophical um i mean there in general um to look at the economic impact, you know, some people recommend all you need to do is look at how much money is spent and how much of that is spent by visitors as opposed to by locals. Uh, and, um, and, you know, the, the, the total spend is, would be a, a gross activity impact, mm. but the created spend would be the, the spend by, um, by primarily visitors. And some people would say, well, that, that's enough. Um, other people would say, well, hang on, um, spend, not all spend is equal. Mm. And really, uh, what's important here is not how much people spend, but what incomes are generated out of it and what jobs are created out of it. And, uh, even in there, you get a bit of a debate. Do you use a, uh, um, what's called an input output model, which has a multiplier context 
uh, or do you use a, a computable general equilibrium model, um, you know, which has got some other more sophisticated um, uh, linkages in there. You know, the, the reality is that at the state level and certainly at the regional level, those models used to, um, don't produce significantly different um, mm. answers. So, but, so the first one is, do you just use the expenditure? Yeah. The second one is, do you translate that into jobs and, yeah. and incomes? Uh, which I think is important because yeah. not every dollar of expenditure has the, you know, it, um, has the same sort of flow through effect. So, um, so there's that. In the area of, of general value, that's, that's much harder again than that, that level of debate. Um, I mean, some people out there would say, would say, well, you know, a, a job, if you didn't have the job, uh, if you didn't have to work at the, the, the event, you'd go down the beach. Yeah. So you've got to take off the value from going down the beach. So the cost benefit of actually having a, a, a short term job at a festival is that you you could have worked at that or you could have gone to the beach. Or that's that's whatever, right. Yeah. So some people would suggest you've got to you've got to take off that effect. That that seems to me to be a bit of a far reach, mm. um, but uh, but some people seem to to believe that that's that's valid. I am in. Um, I'm very interested in in finding out some more. I guess about that. There's not a lot of evidence around uh, around how people. Um, value those short-term yeah. opportunities. Uh, yeah, you know, you know that there'll be some people out there who say, uh, oh, "I wish I didn't have to work this weekend." Um, the weather's nice, but you also know some people say, "You know, the opportunity of a few extra mm. dollars is very, very important to me." So, yeah, you know, finding something out about that it answers some of those questions. Yeah. I mean, the other questions are, you know, how do you work out a value by which which um, uh, local people um, consider the event. Yeah. So, how do you put some sort of metrics around that? And that's a lot tougher. Mm. Um, you know, we, we ask general questions. You ask general questions on, you know, did people consider the event was good value? Well, I mean, we've asked general questions of the the broader population. Do they support these mm. events or not? Uh, translating that into a value proposition is harder. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And, Again, again, it 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 almost sort of seen it, it's there's almost sort of different different audiences and stakeholders of going. Well, you've got the the government if they're if they're helping to fund that event, of they want to make sure that it's actually it's it's um, economically valuable, but also sort of politically valuable to to show that they're involved in 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 event. And 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 then you, I guess, you've got the general population who might be thinking. Do we spend money on that, or do we spend money on hospitals, or do it like it's it's almost sort of thinking about all those sort of questions going through. What is there a? I guess one with the work we do with different arts organisations and cultural organisations, it almost sort of seems like there's a the community doesn't or segments of the community don't really understand the value and contribution of the arts in their own right. So they're kind of, they're probably thinking, well, I don't go to the Fringe or I don't go to the Festival or I don't go to WOMAD, so, um, like, why should the government be sort of helping to support that? Is there a, I guess, is there a, is there an opportunity to, for the arts to, to better sell the value of what they do to the community or? Well, I mean, I, I think the arts have been trying to sell the value um, uh, for some time. Yeah. Um, whether people are prepared to listen to that. I yeah. mean, I think the decisions that makers are, yeah. but you only have to go back to just a couple of weeks ago when 
uh, it's not arts and culture, it's recreation. But when a uh, horse race was advertised on the sales of the, of the opera house, um, the debate uh, that that created, yeah. and one of the criticisms of, uh, of, um, of uh, the, um, the, the protesters against this were, well, hang on, the, the, the arts and culture, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really for an elitist sort of activity. Mm. Um, and um, I think there's plenty of evidence to say that arts and culture, a well-balanced arts and cultural uh, mix is really important mm. um, for every aspect of society. I don't think, uh, I mean, I think there's plenty of evidence that says it, it, it's it's not least, and yet that perception still is out there to some extent. Um, uh, but I, so I think there's, yeah, you know, that journey. I don't think it's a journey you'll ever win totally. Mm. I don't. I mean, I think it's about you know just continually making strides at improving the way in which the story is told. Yeah, we did. We've in the last twelve months, obviously, obviously, um, festivals like the the film festival and Hybrid World, and um, and then we'll do we're talking about opera and and, and the theatre, and, and and often exactly what you just said of particularly the opera. People go, oh, opera's for got a certain stereotypical view of the opera and then we'll kind of dig a bit deeper and people go, oh, yeah, I'll probably give it a give it a go. We had one, one um, youngish guy in our focus groups who um, his grandma used to take him along um, and now he sort of goes by himself because he didn't want to take any his friends because he assumed his friends wouldn't go. But there's a lot of kind of, I guess, that that perception of what the arts is and, and, and being exclusive, not inclusive. I guess that's sort of like, I guess, in a place like South Australia when you're having multiple festivals and events targeted at different audiences, hopefully it starts to change that yeah, perception, I, I, doesn't it? I think I think a strong cultural economy has good balance Yeah, uh, and not everybody will like every art form. We all have our favourites. Um, uh, so, but I think it's about... Understanding that these interact and that they benefit mm. each other, and uh, and and I mean, if you look at the local music scene, uh, you know we have lots and lots of very good jazz trained musicians who also support the contemporary music scene in the the state, and mm. uh, and so on. So there is there is a lot of interaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you're you're a muse yourself. Are you, you still still play or? I don't play enough. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah I would like. You to. were playing for quite often for. For a little while, every Friday or whatever. You, yeah, yeah. You, you we, the sax or what, what? What do you play? Uh, in, in that, I've been playing. Uh, we we played every Friday at a local restaurant in a little jazz trio. You play the sax uh, too? Uh, no, you? no. I uh, played double bass. Double bass. Ah, okay, there we go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I've played off and on yeah. over, over a lot of years. Yeah. 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 So where does music and like fit in your life? So when you had the, you got the music. You've got quite a large family as well. So you've got large, large family, music, academic side. Where, where does where does the music fit in your your life? Like, uh, I think everybody benefits from having some passions outside yeah. of, outside of work um, and some interest. I think it makes you a more balanced person. I think having some sort of interest outside of your work stops you getting insular, yeah. uh, helps you be creative. And uh, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's music or sport or. or uh, and you need some sort of emotional release, and I think mm. you're better off for it. Mine happened to be over the years music, um, um, but uh, um, yeah, I think you just need something. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I, I, I sort of 
thought in recent years, that whole idea of you, there's so much sort of about having a very, was it, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, which is kind of rubbish. <laughs> you still, you'll still bloody work and, and there'll be days when it's hard, but you almost, yeah, you do, you almost need those, um, parallel things that usually, there's a thing you're, you're really interested in that's not necessarily going to generate yeah, yeah. enough in, income, but there's something you're good enough at and you enjoy yeah. enough. To um to be able to get yeah I mean I have a brother who's a full time musician he um he's an opera accompanist uh, mainly I I think one of the challenges is if you take your passion into your life's work you know you can love what you work and mm. that's fine but uh, you can also get tired uh, you know you can't you know, I mean any working environment is going to create pressures for mm-hmm. you and uh, so you know even if you can take a first first love into into and make an income uh, out of it then uh, it's still good to have something else. Yeah. Uh, still good to have something. So, yeah, if you've grown up loving loving music and you, you become a full time musician, that's fantastic. It means uh, you, you will probably like you, what what you're doing, but even then, you need something else yeah. outside of that to release. I think. Did you start playing music when you were a kid? That's oh cool. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Yeah, and that and what what did you play when you were younger? I formally learnt piano yeah. uh, and and a bit of trumpet, yeah. um, and then uh, got talked into. Uh, well, I learnt. I taught myself guitar really, and then got talked into buying a bass and found that yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that, I, that, I think there's research showing. Maybe maybe I've just pulled out the the research. Maybe it's not true, but I, my understanding is that there's a correlation between musical skills and mathematical skills. Yeah, yeah, well, there's certainly there's certainly something. I mean, uh, uh, there's something um, that music has that math doesn't, which is about yeah. an ear. But uh, but certainly, uh, you know, there are you know, scales and intervals, and uh, you know, the structure behind music that that has a lot of mathematical overtones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's good. It gives you yeah, and obviously you must listen to lots of music as well. And yeah, 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 yeah. very eclectic music tastes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, You've got you've got quite a big family, haven't you, Barry? Is that right? Or? Well, I've got three children, yeah. um, and uh, these days seven grandchildren. Yeah, By okay. the end of the year, it'll be nine, I think. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so uh, yep. So each of my three kids have had three kids, yeah. or will have had three kids. Yeah. So. Have you guided your kids or your grandkids into you know, how do you have a successful life, whatever that means, or? Oh, I don't think you can guide kids or yeah, grandkids. They um, find their own They, they route have to and... find their own journey. Um, I found one of the challenges of being a parent was uh, through the teenage years, you know, letting your kids have enough enough room to to learn for themselves, even though you thought they were going the wrong way. Yeah. Well, you know, well, they weren't getting things quite right. But you know, they, um, you've got to give them that journey, and it's got to be their life and not yours. Yeah. yeah. So they've got to find the things that they're interested in and, and enthusiastic right, yeah. about. So uh, we we started off with you in Port, you as a young guy in in Port Perry, um, and if we kind of come back at the end of the discussion around kind of like what, what do you sort of see as the sort of the I guess the big trends moving forward, the things that either I don't know you. you Tell like your, your your grandkids or kids to kind of lock into, or other young people, or you just see them as that the, the, are going to become more and more prominent as we move forward. What? Oh, look, I I honestly believe that we we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. Easy to say, yeah, uh, but also easy to overstate. I mean, uh, 
um, overly easy to get concerned about, oh, yeah, you read the newspaper articles, the, the jobs of today won't exist in the future, uh, but jobs will still exist. And, mm. and um, I mean, I, I think the big, the big challenges uh, are around uh, being adaptable. I think we are in the middle of a period when, uh, when there is a lot of change on us and, and, you know, being being uh, flexible and adaptable and so on is going to be important. I think in life as in in work as well as in general life. Yeah. I, I don't think that just relates to work. I, mean, I think technology is having huge impacts on our life. It always has, but yeah. particular style. I mean, if you think that technology change today is having a bigger impact, just go. I mean, just imagine how much change will impact the. Introduction of the electric uh, of lights, electric mm-hmm. lights, lights did. I mean that. You know, there is always something yeah. that creates a change, but yeah. just being flexible. But is there a, more of a need to be adaptable now than was what there was, say, a couple of decades ago? Or oh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I yeah. think that I think there's more knowledge needed behind the adaptability. Yeah. But, but also, I think people do that um, um, organically rather yeah. than necessarily. You know. You know Having to worry too much about how it's going to happen. So, how do you say if you think about your, your students coming through and have been adaptable? Does that mean that they're not necessarily going through uni thinking, "Well, at the end, I'll get this job"? Is it about like, is it about being prepared to to be adaptable in a in a in a work kind of? Yeah, sense, I, or is I, it... I think the biggest challenge in a work uh, in the environment is the biggest change. Um, is the context that, you know, when, when, uh, I was a bit younger, I mean, you could, uh, the, the challenge was finding information to, on which to make decisions. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, you had to put a lot of work into getting the information. I think these days, informa- you know, information is, is so much more abundant. But the decision making part side of things hasn't got any easier. Why is that? Because it's a matter of understanding the information is not always accurate. It's mm. got measurement error in it. Um, it's seemingly contradictory uh, often. Um, so the idea, I, I think the adaptability and flexibility is being able to respond to that, so to the change of information and and, uh, and the construct, thinking constructs that are required more than a particular skill base. But is that kind of almost like a, having... Is that rewiring your brain, or is that just is that is that skills that a university teaches you to be able to kind of be able to take yeah, the data yeah. and and interpret it in the right way and be able to? I, I think I don't think so much about rewiring your brain um, from what people have been traditionally. My own personal view is it's more about um, about not not getting lost in the plethora of information yeah. that you get. And becoming therefore being able to filter that, yeah, being able yeah. to filter it. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, I, I think while in a bad way, some of the discussion about understanding what's fake news and what's not, yeah. uh, some of that being thrown in our face uh, is actually good for us. Um, probably not the context of of the way it's put out there, but I think it is very much um, being able to look and see what is valid news and what is not, uh, and recognizing that. The way technology throws information to us, there is a temptation to to not really think about the, the level of you know what it means, whether it's even true, what it mm. means, 
uh, what the implications are. Very importantly, what is the intent of the the person who's putting the story out there? Uh, yeah, and um, yeah, because everybody has a, has a an agenda, mm-hmm. so you know, being able to think through what the agenda is in the information that's yeah. presented is where, where a couple of decades ago was there was limited information, and the information maybe came through maybe maybe it had been filtered. That's that's previously correct. anyway. So yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Yeah, I think I mean. News was presented in a more thoughtful way yeah. uh, when information was harder to get, get yeah, to. Okay. Yeah. And, and you mentioned about that people need to be more adaptive moving forward. Does that is that kind of come into a context of, of, of things like resilience but also you may not have a job for life, you may have to kind of flip from one job to the next. To Is that, is that where you sort of... Yeah, yeah, partly. But, I mean, it's, it's more, again, it's not, not so much worrying about the skills but the... Yeah, you know, the, the ability to to think outside of of what you might be used to. Yeah, okay. all right, good. And what? Any, anything else that you'd like to leave us with? Sort of, the, the, you, you do bits of consulting at work, obviously on festivals and events and economic impact. Is is there a way sort of people can find you if that's something that they'd like some assistance with? Sure, sure. Uh, so, I mean, you can. Contact me just through a, a website at Bond, uh, yeah. as I'm located at uh, Bond. Uh, I'm happy to help with academic advice. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm interested in doing academic research that uh, that will improve our knowledge base in in infrastructure generally. Yeah. Uh, but as I said, I have a particular passion for social and cultural infrastructure, so um very happy to do that, but also to provide advice on particular events or, or so on as well. But all right. best way to find me is just at Bond University. Yeah. All right. Good. Thanks, Barry. All right. All the best. All right. Yeah. Hey, Jason here to say goodbye. Until next time, please subscribe to Real People via iTunes, your favourite podcast platform. While you are there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday, same time, emails on everything human-centred, customer focus, entrepreneurialism and thinking different, popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony and Suet Anantula, please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Aroo.